This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 59. I think that's the beauty about uh, being a business owner or even uh, in commercial property. It's about solving those problems along the way. And the more problems you solve, the better chance that you have of succeeding. All right, all right, CP community, thank you for joining me. My name is Andrew Bean, and I'm very, very excited to bring this episode to you because it's all about using business to catapult yourself into commercial property, and here it is. Longtime listener Kevin Porter jumps on the show with me today to talk about how he's used business to really catapult himself into commercial property. He's a longtime serial entrepreneur, even selling toys and doing all that kind of stuff when he was a kid. But he's used his business sense and all the learnings that he's got from actually running his business and then selling that business. And now he can really, really fund his commercial portfolio. So great interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let me know what you think. And here it is. But first, if you haven't checked it out already, and I know a lot of you already have because I've been crazy busy with all the consultation calls, but I've opened up a whole bunch of new services in my commercial consulting business, all aimed at helping you guys, the investors and other professionals, not only just getting the job done, but educating yourself along the way. They're all about educating you as the investor so you can do it for yourself as well. Whether that's crunching the numbers on a commercial property, figuring out the best market or location or area that you want to purchase in, giving you advice on a specific deal that you're looking at to making sure it stacks up, to even doing the due diligence for you and educating you how we actually do due diligence on commercial property. All of these services are geared at helping you, the investor, educate yourself and not breaking the bank. Or if you're just looking how to add value to your property and you can't figure out yourself and you need someone to look over your property to figure out how you can force crazy value onto that property. If you want to check out what I'm doing, go to www.andrewbean.com.au. Book in a free consultation. I only have time for a certain amount of consultation calls per week and they seem to be booking up very, very fast each week. So if if you can't get in for a little while, I'm sorry about that. But if you want to check it out, go to www.andrewbean.com.au. My next guest is a long-time listener and serial entrepreneur. It's Kevin Porter. How are you, mate? Nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. No worries, mate. You are very, very welcome. So today, mate, I wanted to actually have a good chat to you about how you built an awesome business that you then on sold and how you're using that capital to now jump in and build your commercial property portfolio. For listeners who don't know who you are, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and history and business and then also property? Yeah, sure, mate. For me, property's always been there for the past 20 or so years. 
wife, three young kids. I love to travel. There's a degree thrown in there, a decade in corporate world, decade in business. I lived in the UK. I've got a real passion for business, real passion for property, and often those two are quite interlinked. I guess I'm fortunate enough at the moment to be technically retired, but ultimately we never really retire, right? The brain's still ticking and I'm young enough to have another passage ahead of me. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Fantastic, man. And just so listeners know, how old are you? I just hit 40. You're a legend. That's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) So, mate, what was the degree that you did? Marketing and international business. How do you think that's actually served you in terms of your entrepreneurial endeavors? I'll be honest, I don't know if it did. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I was getting at because a lot of people study things and it really has no effect to earn money in the real world. I think you're right. I, I think mine was a journey of this is the next thing to do after high school and it sounded great and I didn't have to pay anything up front, so why not? For me, it was probably just a journey of three years to mature, three or four years to mature up. I actually worked nearly full time that whole time anyway. So in my own opinion, I I think I got a lot more out of work experience than I did uni. But hey, that's a story for another day. (laughs) Fantastic. All right. So when did you start your first business? I had a market stall at the market selling toys. I think I was about nine or 10 when that started. I've had retail stores, five of them along the years. I even had one business that was kind of like an Airbnb for vans, vans and utes. That was an interesting business for a while. But my main business was a wholesale homewares business. Uh, That's the one that stuck by me for nearly a decade. Yeah, wow. So you've got that typical entrepreneurial story where right from being a kid, you were just into it. Like you didn't have the lemonade stand, but it was pretty close with the toy stand. Yeah, pretty much. I was very lucky to grow up in a business-minded family and we've got a bit of a multicultural background, half uh, Chinese and British. And I think I grew up with a lot of that entrepreneurial passion and the pursuit of trial and error and problem solving and uh, pursuit of profit, I suppose. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me about the actual toys you were selling. What did that look like? Honestly, I think those toys haven't changed this many years later, 30 years later. You've got cap guns and slime and yeah. basketball cards and potato guns. You stick it yeah. in a potato and you fire out a pellet. <laughs> uh, oh, mate, I grew up with this stuff, but it was nice to profit from it as well. Yeah. At the time. So, so where were you buying it from? And then how were you figuring out the price you wanted to unsell it for? Buying it wholesale and selling it retail, I think that's a lesson that's probably stuck with me over my business life and, and even in property as well. You've got to have enough margin in there and you've got to allow for your expenses and you've got to put in your time and effort to get the rewards. So yeah, started at a very young age, I think. Yeah, awesome. And so how about the retail stores? What were you actually selling in those retail stores? Yeah, they were in the gift and homewares industry. So I wouldn't say I was overly passionate about gift and homewares, but again, it was a business. I call it a stepping stone. They weren't huge money makers by any means, but I had energy back then. I still do, but you know, when you're younger and you're naive, you jump into a lot more things and those businesses allowed me to grow and learn and ultimately lead on to bigger stepping stones from there. Yeah. And what about the Ute Airbnb business? Is this like a hiring business, was it? Yeah, picture an Airbnb, right? You need a, yep. you need a dozen properties and you add some systems and you get the same cleaner, economies of scale and all those cool terms. I applied it to utes and vans. So 
I think at one time I had a dozen vans and a couple of utes and they were all sitting out there in different parts of the city. And it was my take on a vending machine business. They just sit out there and collect the cash. But I think I quickly realized that I wasn't getting the return on my time and investment. And yeah, I'm not a mechanic either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, unfortunately with the utes and cars, they have quite a bit of operational and mechanical expense, don't they? They do get a call on a weekend and go, another clutch is blowing and what does that hire need the ute for and the droids. Yeah. And tell me about your main business that you actually worked in for 10 years. What was it and how did you come up with that business to start with? Yeah, I was very fortunate. It was born from the 2011 floods where my parents had this business prior to me. Unfortunately, got taken out by the floods and then decided to retire. So I saw that as my opportunity to take a brand, take a concept, and I substituted my own products and developed new products and really brought in a lot more business mindset and passion and took a lot of action to go down that path. Over the years, I grew and learned, and the retail stores were part of that. They allowed me to grow a bigger wholesale business along the way. It was probably only about five years or so ago I started getting a lot more mentoring or doing courses on business that I saw my growth really skyrocket. And yeah, over COVID was a particularly interesting time as well for that industry. And so was there an online aspect to that business as well? I sort of saw it as a very traditional business, wholesaling. I tried to bring in e-commerce principles into that business, which worked really well, actually. A lot of people in wholesale rely on relationships and cold calling and sales calls and, and the like, whereas I really wanted to make it digital. So it meant we had to tackle more customers, go digital marketing rather than offline marketing. It worked as well. A lot of people did catch up over the years, but we were one of the first to get into things like SEO and Facebook marketing and, and so on and so forth. So this wasn't just a B2B business, you were actually selling to the actual end consumer? In some channels, yeah. Right. Can you just try and explain to me what the actual business is and how it actually operated? How did you find customers and who were those customers? The customers would be your typical homeware store in a high street or a shopping mall. There might be a news agency, an IGA or a gift shop. The goal of the business was to identify as many of those, thousands and thousands of those across the country. Anyone who Googled wholesale giftware or wholesale homewares, we'd be the first ones to come up. It was probably a pretty cool opportunity, wasn't it, to be able to just take on really a known revenue source and then overlay a young person or a young kind of operational mindset to it. When you first took the business, did you have an idea of where you wanted to take it or the potential of the business? I'm going to go with no. I actually floundered a bit in the first few years. I knew the right things to do, but executing that on a limited budget can be difficult. Back in those days, you don't have a marketing team. You don't have a customer service team. You have to scrimp and save and patch things together and do it yourself. So there were some long hours there. And often in the earlier years of business, you don't get time to sit back and and go, well, what's the best return on my time or what's the best return on my money? You have to just get in there and do it and get business and get orders out and do your own marketing. So it was a tricky time, but 11 years I had that business. So I learned a lot along the way. They say an overnight success is 10 years in the making. (laughs) It definitely is. It definitely is. So I can totally understand. Like people don't understand, like when you first start a business, you're literally wearing all of the hats. You're doing everything until you can at least get to some kind of profitability or scale. Um, And then you can start buying other people's time to give yourself time to do higher leverage activities. 
starting a business is in running it and doing it profitably and doing it well, like you've ended up doing, it's a very, very difficult task. So hats off to you, mate. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. With the actual business, how many times did you have to pivot and change direction for that business to actually do what it does? I guess I saw everything as a stepping stone. I'm a big fan of that concept that whether you start somewhere and you get to another location, there's a lot of stepping stones along the way. And it probably doesn't matter which direction you take along the journey, ups and downs, you'll get there in the end as long as you you have those values and principles and and your end goal in mind. For me, I can go back to exchange rate fluctuations or staffing issues or coming into COVID, just a huge bunch of challenges along the way. And I think that's the beauty about being a business owner or even in commercial property. It's about solving those problems along the way. And the more problems you solve, the better chance that you have of succeeding. So definitely lots of pivots, definitely lots of challenges, but I guess that's part of the journey. And how many staff at your highest point have working for you? Uh, It's around 30 to 40 staff. It's a considerable amount of people to be managing by yourself. So how did you actually structure the management team? We had an awesome culture. Credit to the team that was there and still there now. Had a great manager in place, great little teams. So marketing teams, product teams, warehouse teams. We even had offshore staff as well and customer service. And it was a real joy to rock up every day and work with a great team. But that doesn't happen by accident. It's been years in the making to build a great culture and build great people along the way, but also bring great new people into the business and there's a lot of challenges in finding good people at the moment or people in general in business with all the staffing shortages and whatnot so definitely a journey yeah i mean the culture of the business really comes from the entrepreneur doesn't it and then that kind of gets diluted down each person that goes down the rung and then eventually when you get to a huge corporation the business is really a beast of its own building cultures and maintaining culture i reckon is one of the most difficult things about running a business and definitely a big corporation. Yeah, definitely right. So, mate, when you actually did get to the time for being able to hire someone, who was the first hire that you made and what position were they in? Administration. Because I don't know many people (laughs) that like administration. (laughs) Yeah. Jack of all trades would have to be it. And that obviously then freed up you to do other things. Correct. I think people also use other people to give themselves back time, but then you've also got to do something with your time that's a higher leverage activity. Otherwise, it's just going to cost you more money having someone there and you're not making any more money. What were the actual activities that then freed you up to do? I think it's a story of empowerment. So if I'm empowering other people to come along and do certain, I guess you could call them lower level tasks, I actually empower them to be better than what I could do at that task. And once they're empowered to do the task, make decisions, it sort of encourages myself to be empowered to do higher level things. So getting that time to spend on a sales and marketing plan or hey, what profit are we really making on that product? Because once you get the time to start analysing those things, as simple as they might be, can really open your eyes up to what are you really doing here? What is this business doing? And where's the money being made? At the end of the day, you need cash flow and you need profitability so that this business survives and thrives. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of failure or big failure along the way, did you have any and what did you actually learn from that? On reflection, you don't see it as a failure, but if I was to identify core concept, I would probably say time spent on things that don't matter. So 
we all talk about ROI when it comes to investing. I kind of see it as an ROI on your time, effort and money. If you spend time on the wrong thing, you'll get the wrong result. Or if your staff going down a path that doesn't bring any real return, at the end of the day, what's the point? So I think it's getting laser focused on what really is a great return on your time, money and effort, staff's time and effort and getting laser focused on those things. Yeah, I guess it's like the the 80-20 rule, isn't it? That 80% of the time you're doing things that probably don't move the needle and don't matter. And you need to be focusing on that 20% that actually do make you money. That's it. And I think I've been a, a victim of starting up other small businesses along the way or little investments along the way, which I definitely have learned from, but I probably could have gotten a better return on something else if I'd stopped and uh, had the time. But hey, you can't rewrite history. So it's all a, all a learning journey. I'm definitely a a victim of that as well, but I can I can attest to probably doing too many things at once. I'm really got to peel that back and be laser focused on the real things that move the needle. Someone wise told me, let the main thing be the main thing. <laughs> That's right. So, mate, you actually did sell this business. Is that okay if you can tell us the figure or how has that actually worked? Did you have a disclosure statement? It's definitely not an area I disclose. It's definitely allowed me to consider retirement, but I guess core to me is I actually use that journey and use that time. And as as a lot of people do, they put their income into other investments. And over the years, I've been able to get into residential developments and commercial property. And that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. The funds I've got from selling the business are still sitting there, but at the same time, I'm lucky enough to have commercial property at my side, which is for me, my, my main thing these days, I suppose. Awesome. You're probably in a small percentage of people who actually are running a business or started and run a business that actually end up selling it because a lot of businesses, more than people would probably think, actually go unsold that are great businesses with great profitability. It's just no one wants to buy them, especially not their kids. So you're probably in quite a bit of a minority there. Yeah, I think you're right. I see a lot of businesses probably not run as well as they could be. And if if it's anything, I can reflect back on my comments earlier around a lot of people need to take the time to step back and how can I run this better? What's really making profit here? And what can I cull? Because time is money. Spending time on the right things to get the right return. Yeah, vitally important, I feel. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of like one character trait that you think you need to be successful in business, what would that be? I would say taking action. It's the same in property as well. It's a little bit like the the Grant Cardone principles. Take 10 times more action than your competitor. Make 10 times more phone calls than your competitor and you'll inevitably win out if you don't even make a single phone call or if you don't even have any marketing going out and you're going to suffer the same consequences as, as the average. That would be my one main thing, taking action. Because if you don't take action, you don't get to test anything. If you don't test anything, you don't know what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, I love that. So, mate, tell me about how your actual property journey started. Did it start during your time working this business or was it directly after the sale? I think I must be lucky to be have that numbers mindset from, from an early age with my market stalls and little businesses and whatnot. I was lucky enough to buy my first property at 21 here in Brisbane. I think it was a, a bit of a love affair from there. I was thrown deep into my first market cycle. I didn't know what a market cycle was. And from there, I've done a a lot more buy and holds and renovations and subdivisions and developments and obviously commercial property as well. 
Yeah, awesome, mate. What was the, the first commercial property that you actually purchased? Industrial. I did have retail in there as well. And for me, I was had the advantage of being a tenant. So throughout business, I was always a tenant in a shopping centre or a high street or a warehouse. And so I was always on the receiving end of leases and paying bonds and so on and so forth. And that took my mind to the industrial more than the retail. That's probably my preferred commercial property type. Definitely started with retail and then industrial. I guess because you were a tenant, you'd obviously like read through leases. So you had an understanding of how a lease should work or what should be in a lease. Probably a really big advantage for you. Yeah, more from a familiarity point of view. Once you've read one lease, you get more confidence to read the next lease. But I won't lie, leases are very long and they're written (laughs) in a way that the average person can get confused. And I think if I've got a superpower, it's leaning on consultants. So I do lean on solicitors and conveyances to dissect that for me and break it down into something a lot more simple. Yeah, awesome. Hey team, I'm not really big at asking for this kind of stuff and I haven't done it much in the past, but if you are a return listener to this podcast and this content has helped you out in any way, it would be absolutely amazing if you could leave me a quick rating and review. It only takes a minute and it helps me out heaps. It's a super small ask and it would make me love you long time. All right, back to the show. So, mate, tell us about what was the actual first investment? What was the cap rate, net income? Like, tell me a bit more about it. The retail one, probably not worth mentioning, but the commercial one was quite interesting. It was a few years back now and had a whopping cap rate of about 5.5%. I don't know if I'd repeat that these days, but what I gained from that is value add. My sole goal on that one was value add. They were very under-rented. There was a month-to-month tenant in there, so one of the tenants I could cycle through or renegotiate, but it also had quite a big land component. So... I was quite excited to secure that one a few years back. And unfortunately, I'm still working on the value add, but definitely improved since I bought it. Fantastic. So I guess buying a a commercial property at a sharp cap rate, if you have a great value add strategy that you can execute, is not a bad thing. I would never say that was a bad thing, especially if there's just money left on the table being under-rented because you don't have to put anything else into it. You just got to get a new tenant or raise the rates. So with that, particular property it was month to month leases how did the bank go with financing that or did you pay cash no no i um, had a 30 percent deposit i had to put some other guarantees down but at that stage i was lucky to have a business banker already so they guided me through and they also understood the value add perspective as well which was nice to have that on board so they knew that i had a 12-month goal a 24-month goal to turn it around and like you said that cap rate wouldn't stay there forever and yeah very lucky in that respect did you actually end up getting a new tenant and putting the rates up and getting a new lease yeah one of them has been turned around but unfortunately another one has remained only a little bit higher i inherited a quite a poorly worded lease it's probably a something to look out for. I knew it at the time. I was like, due diligence discovered that and it was a risk I was willing to take. I'm stuck with it now, but it's still a great return and I'd happily buy it over again. And so with this bad lease, like what is it like? There's no rent reviews or anything like that or something or crazy long period with cannot get them out at all. (laughs) No, their market review was at the end of their lease, which at that time was only a year or so away. But at option renewal time, market rent was to go up market rent 
but if the two parties couldn't agree, it would revert back to CPI. Oh, okay. So, but that's probably not a bad thing now, though. That's a funny thing. It's it's flipped because everyone wanted a fixed, you know, four or five percent, and now everyone wants CPI. Their rent was, at the time was about fifty percent lower than market rent. Crazy. And I think it was the power of due diligence. I knew it at the time that I transacted on the property, and I knew what I was up for. I think if I didn't know that, I'd be bitterly disappointed later on down the track. Yeah, fair enough. So was there anything else in that lease that was a big eye-opener that you actually have now seen? It's a real eye-opener in terms of knowing the strength of a lease, not relying on your your mum and dad solicitor or a conveyancer. It's really getting those consultants that are great at commercial property. And if I was to inherit that lease, so I didn't have a choice, but there's no way I'd have that lease on any of my properties moving forward, just ambiguity and very stacked in the favour of the tenant, unfortunately. Yeah. Realistically, the lease should be stacked in the favour of the owner. Usually uh, a residential lease is stacked in the favour of the tenants, but commercial leases, you do want to kind of put it in your favour being the owner. That's right. You'd think so, but that's what made this a buying opportunity as well from a purchasing point of view. So good with the bad. Yeah, fair enough. With this particular property, obviously it's multi-tenanted, which lowers the risk significantly for complete vacancy as well. That alone is a great deal, just having two tenants. Yeah, that's right. And the second tenant there, it's it's a five plus five plus five. So really worked hard on getting a great tenant in there on great numbers and trying to find that win-win solution. They're a great tenant and that asset's really turning around, which is great. Beautiful. So in terms of the site, you said it was a reasonably large site. What are the other value-add opportunities on this one? Because I've gone and signed a 5 plus 5 plus 5 with the other tenant, it does hamstring me a little bit from a development perspective, but that's okay. For me, this is a longer-term play. I could develop half of the site. I could work with the other tenant to increase rent in due course. I can get a new tenant in. It's great cash flow and future-proofing. Still very happy with this asset. Everyone really should be looking at it like it's a, any kind of property investment is a long-term investment, 10, 20, 30 years. What kind of horizon would you say is a long horizon for you for an investment? Over my time, I've been very short-term focused, which probably to my detriment sometimes with buying and holding residential or renovating residential or subdividing residential, I I always took a short-term approach and it worked from a perspective that every time I went into a new project or even into commercial, having cash on hand to transact gets you much more friendly with the bank. But on the flip side, you miss out on the capital growth along the way. You pay a bunch of stamp duty and and pay a bunch of tax. My mindset was more happy to make the profit and pay the tax if I can use that cash to get into a bigger deal or a better, more suitable deal moving forward. So that was mentality I took. It's worked well for me. It might not work well for others. But in commercial property now, I think the difference or the game changer for me was from day one, having cash flow up front, but also capital growth. And in the world of resi, I struggled to get both at the same time. Yeah. Would you rely on the market to make you or are you looking at forcing capital growth by the way of like increasing the rents? I look at it from a different perspective. My first layer is cash flow. And everyone jumps with joy when they see the cash flow from commercial property. That's my first layer. You'd be crazy not to go and increase rents because increased rents 
mean increased cash flow. It doesn't increase your bank mortgage. It doesn't increase your rates and water or any of those outgoings. It just increases the money coming into your bank account. So I'm definitely a fan of increasing rents. And then the third layer down is your capital growth, which is just the best surprise along the journey where it's not like residential where you see smaller increases, but you see increases all the time. For commercial, it's just a different playing field, but the capital growth is definitely there. That's probably how I assess it. Cash flow first and capital growth second as a nice surprise. Yeah, I mean, I'm totally the same when I look at an investment. It's always I'm investing for cash flow first and then appreciation, capital growth second. I never would rely on the market to do that. It's always figuring out a way to force value onto that asset. At the end of the day, I can predict that. I can also calculate that and figure out what it's going to be worth. If I add this amount of cash flow, then it's worth this amount based on the cap rate that I bought it at. So I'm never relying on the market to make me. I'm always relying on the strategy that you put forward to actually add value to the property. That's right. And I think in commercial, you get approached by sales agents to try and sell your property, but a lot of landlords don't sell their commercial properties for that reason. What's the point in selling it and cashing in that capital growth if you only have to do something else with the cash anyway? The capital growth is nice to have there, but what do you do with it in the next stage? Yeah, you need, you, need, you need someone to put it. So it's That's like, right. well, you know, how can I, I'm not going to be able to probably reinvest this to get the same amount of return. I'm going to be able to getting a worse return. So what's the real point? And that is one of the problems with commercial property is why would you sell it? <laughs> I hear you, even myself talking to sales agent on a daily basis, asking them, hey, have you seen this type of property? Have you found any of these properties? You got any vendors that want to sell? And they bang their heads up against a wall because they just don't find vendors that want to sell. So yeah. I think that's only a good thing. Once you buy one, you, you keep your fingers on it and hold on for dear life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I actually heard something the other day that I thought was actually quite interesting and somewhat true is that the people who are really rich and mega rich, they think in a different time horizon than people who are poor. So the shorter your time horizon you think to try and get money, like am I thinking about my weekly wage, my monthly wage in a year? How much is that going to cost me? If you're thinking about the shorter the time that you're thinking about, the more poor you are. And the people that have really mega wealth, they just change the time horizon to be, you know, 10, 20, 30 years in front. It doesn't really matter what happens on a day to day. They're making moves to basically create huge value and huge cash flow over time. That's it. I think... You're probably a little bit like me. You might be on Price Finder or RP Data and you see a property come up and you look at what they paid for it 20 or 30 years ago or even 10 years ago and you wish you could turn back time and do the same. Well, we're in that box seat now. The only time to buy is now and it gives you confidence to know what it'll be like in 10 to 20 years from now and we should be in the same position. Yeah, that's right. So, mate, how are you feeling about the current market conditions? I kind of call it a bit of a tug of war at the moment. I see the market leveling off or stabilizing a little bit or equalizing, which I actually think is good for buying. There's nothing worse than not getting calls from sales agents or not finding anything to buy or cap rates that are really, really poor. So I think at the moment, agents are a little bit more open to chatting, which is nice if you want to get constructive or put in offers. I've been speaking to a few agents lately and I think everyone's come to it a a bit of an exhausted time period with COVID. The changes in the market over commercial property, especially in my area around industrial, everyone's a bit tired of it. And I think some people are even looking forward to next year, maybe a bit of a reset. Yeah, 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 that's right. 
I mean, it is starting to look a lot nicer, isn't it? When you're starting to see sixes, you know, back in the sales marketing. I am seeing them now. Like a lot of things are being actually listed from the get-go with a six in front of it rather than being a five and a half or 5% purchase. Spot on. One of my, probably the smallest purchase I've ever done is happening at the moment. And I actually got that on a on a 6.4% with a seven-year lease. And if you'd asked me that a few months ago, I would have thought we were dreaming. The deals are definitely coming out, which is great. Realistically, a year ago, that property would have been a five cap with a seven-year lease on it probably. A lot close to a five. It's crazy, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. And when you speak to agents now, they're a lot more like open to like, this is probably where it's going to land. We're trying to get this, but realistically, the vendor has to change their expectations. And I think it does start with the agent giving the vendor the expectations when they come in and say, I have a property to sell. Before it was hot, 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 like really sharp yields. And now I think the agents are really saying to them, like, you have to be realistic in this kind of conditions. Yeah, and I think it's standing up for what you need for your own portfolio. So going back a couple of months, in the Perth market, I'd signed one up there at about the 6.7% yield mark. And when Brisbane agents are calling me up, I actually use that as a line to say, well, I'm getting 6.5% in Perth, or I'm not going to accept 5.5% in Brisbane. You know, I need cash flow. I need that yield. Interest rates are going up. And that actually worked to my favor a few times. Those same agents came back to me with, oh, look, this one's at 6% now, or this one's at 6.2. And what you put out there and what you're focused on getting can come back your way in due course. You just got to know what you're after, I suppose. Yeah, I totally agree. So, mate, where are you seeing opportunity now? What markets are you actually looking at? I'm native to Brisbane, so I'm always looking in Brisbane. I'm a big fan of local market. It just gives you that secret advantage. I have been over to Perth a couple of times. I also looked at Adelaide at one recently as well. I love the fact that there's no stamp duty concert to pay there. It just makes your deposit go a bit further. But I'm probably sticking away from some of the regional markets. But Perth and Adelaide are a couple that I've been looking at myself. Yeah, well, Perth Soys are actually, as you said, it's had great yields all through this kind of boom. So, mate, in your actual property journey, have you ever had any major problems that have come up with any of your properties? Prolonged vacancy, huge expenses that you didn't know about, air cons or something like that. Has anything like really propped up that really come back at you and said, oh, shit, this is probably a bad idea now? <laughs> uh, I wish I could say it was a smooth journey, but you know, this is property, this is business and there's always things that come up. And I think the poorly worded lease that I mentioned before was one of the trickier ones. Just recently, I've had to outlay around 70000 for uh, a main switchboard. That was uh, an expensive exercise. Body corporates. They're always fun getting in the, into the middle of tussles or signage rights and things like that. But in the grand scheme of things, I sometimes compare commercial property investment to running a business. And I can safely say that running a business is harder and has more challenges. Commercial property <laughs> is definitely easier. <laughs> it always comes down to the people that are involved. How many people are involved in the actual operation of the business or the property? And when there's, when there's just more people, it just seems to be harder. Yes. <laughs> so with that actual switchboard seventy thousand dollars is a fair whack to actually have to pay did that solely get put onto you or was there any kind of way that the tenant or the maybe it was body corporate could have helped you out in that expense this was a freestander so it was definitely all on me and it's not general wear and tear this unit had been there for nearly 60 years it was definitely time for a change i knew it at the time of purchasing the property 
I just didn't realise it was going to be that much. And namely because it's quite a unique piece of equipment. It has to be custom made, custom installed, power needs to go off for a weekend. But with any aged building comes, oh, this popped up or this flicked this switch and we need to rewire that part. And, oh, have you heard about the sub main that we need to replace as well? <laughs> um, so... <laughs> the joys but that's kind of why you've got to chase cash flow right especially on larger properties like this you've got to have that cash flow there because ultimately some stuff will come up over the years and you've got to have that cash in the bank don't go spending it all you need some put aside for a rainy day like this it's a 60 year thing so if that goes another 60 years i think uh, everyone will be quite happy <laughs> You know, it comes down to having those cash buffers and reserves. It's not just for mortgage repayments. It's actually for unplanned expenses. That's right. What if a, a tenant leaves and you've soaked up the three-month bond? Times are good at the moment with lots of tenant demand for a lot of different types of property. But what happens next year? What if there's a softening in tenant demand? You lose a tenant and you're stuck for a while and you exhaust the bond and can't chase any more money. You just don't know what could happen. So it's nice to yeah. have those buffers in place. And the bank prefers that too. For obvious yeah, reasons. that's it. So, mate, what would the one skill or attribute you would say that you need to be a good property investor? The same as business, taking action. I see too many people just hop onto realcommercial or realestate.com and have a browse. It's those people that take action to read, follow websites, newsletters, podcasts like this one, courses on commercial property. If you take all that action and then... The second layer of that is making the phone calls to sales agents, calling a buyer's agent if you want to, or putting in offers. If you don't take any of that action, you never get anywhere. Not only that, you probably need to put in 10 offers before a couple of them get accepted. So it's definitely about taking that action to get results. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Actually, I speak to people about this a little bit and they say, I can't find any deals. I'm like, okay, well, I can't get any offers accepted. Well, how many offers have you put in the last week? Like none. If you don't put any offers in, you're not going to get any accepted. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so it's like it. you, if you want to get shake one deal out, there is a number that is actually there that you have to put this amount of offers on to get a chance at getting one deal. So you just got to figure out what that number is. If it's 10 offers, 20 offers, 30 offers to shake one out of the end of your funnel to be able to get one. It's a patience game. If the offer doesn't get accepted the first time, then it's still for sale in three weeks' time. Make another phone call. Take more action. Go do a drive-by and speak to the neighbor. The more action you take, the better chance of success in getting those good deals. Totally agree. So, mate, what are some resources that you've actually used or you can recommend to us that have really got you to where you are today with commercial property and business as well? I'm a big fan of learning. I'm not the greatest with books. I find it difficult to get through a whole book, but a podcast, you've hooked me. I'll listen to podcasts on commercial property, business, health and well-being. I can listen to a podcast while I'm doing 30 minutes on a treadmill. So, you know, hacking the system and learning and being healthy at the same time. But also a big fan of courses as well. I've done courses all across the board with property and business, and I wouldn't be where I am now without investing not just the time, but the money into all of those courses over the years to get to where I am. Often people invest in a course with their time and money, but they actually end up saving time and money by doing courses and reading and podcasts. So yeah, time and money well spent. 
Yeah. The way people kind of look at it is like, oh, that course costs a lot of money. But a lot of the time, they could actually figure it out themselves. And what they're actually buying is they're buying the time associated that it would cost them to be able to learn all of it. So if, if it took you like a year to learn all of this, but you could pay $1,000 for a course and you would learn it in a month, that's a really good investment to be able to do that because you've cut down the time it costs by 11 months. It's thinking about you're actually buying speed and your time back. And that kind of investment, it never goes away unless you forget investing that kind of knowledge. No one can take that from you. I totally agree with you, mate. It's one of the best things I've ever invested in. And it's got me to where I am today is, you know, putting the time in to, to actually play a podcast instead of listening to music in the car or actually buying courses. You know, it's uh, really a, a great thing. That's it. I, I'm competitive by nature, but if you'd told me when I was 25, 26 that I'd be doing property subdivisions, I would have told you you were dreaming. But I followed a course, I followed a recipe, I went to meetups, I put in the action and, and I ended up doing about five developments along the way. And it's the same with commercial property or buying and holding or business. If you get educated, it's speed. You can beat your competitors if you know more and do more. Yeah, 100%. So, mate, big question. What's next for you now? always on the lookout for commercial property. There's a little coffee shop I'm buying at the moment. It's sub 500K with a great yield and a seven-year lease. So I'm always on the hunt for properties that make sense numbers-wise. I love the numbers game, but I'm actually going down a path of commercial property development as well, probably in the industrial space. So that's something that's new for me that will be my next stage. Today's been absolutely fantastic. Where can the listeners go to find you? Yeah, look, I'm on LinkedIn as well, Kevin Porter. Awesome, mate. Well done. Well, today's guest has been Kevin Porter. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. That brings us to the end of the show. I'd like to thank my guest today and Kevin McLeod for the music. Don't forget to check out my new website, www.andrewbean.com.au for all of the awesome new ways that I can help you with your commercial property journey. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.